Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings podcast, episode 17. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and joining me, as always, every week is the valiant Mitchell Davis. What's up? Hey. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. Doing good, man. I'm ready to continue talking about Beethoven and uh, getting into I don't know some some awesome music, and then um, kind of kind of getting back into the regular swing of things with uh, you know our regular eclectic mix of stuff yeah. after the two Beethoven albums we're going to talk about. Um, yeah, man. How's everything going for you? Pretty good. Uh, pretty good. Just. Um you know, it's the weekend, uh, MLK Day tomorrow, you know, happy MLK Day to, the, to those who observe uh, tomorrow. And and even if you don't observe, you know, and you get the day off, hey, it, it's a day off, like yeah. like Chris Rock said, you know, it, it's a day off. How, how hard is that, you know? <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, things are good, man. Good, good to hear your voice again. Good to sit down and talk again. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, oh, yeah, it's always cool just to sit down and and just i don't know just talk about music oh yeah it's cool oh, yeah <laughs> yeah definitely um yeah so like i mentioned this week we are going to finish up talking about our beethoven albums um we've got a beethoven uh, piano concerto album uh, his piano concertos number 4 and 5 and then we've got i i hesitated to even call it an album we've got an album in quotes of beethoven's complete symphonies <laughs> one through nine yeah uh maybe 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 like a box set let's 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 call it a box yeah it's kind of ridiculous (laughs) to call that an album but um because we're talking about you know hours and hours and hours and hours of music a collection of music for sure yeah Yeah. uh then after that um that's going to finish up our beethoven and then after that we're going to move to early jazz pioneer bix beiderbeck uh the trumpet player uh, then we're going to move to Harry Belafonte, uh, the famous singer and actor and activist and uh, all-around good dude. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, his uh, his album uh, Live at Carnegie Hall. I'm from. I have to say, early in his career, 1959. Mm. Um, and then uh, we're going to end with Peter Bellamy and his, uh, I guess, kind of folk opera called The Transports. Uh, which was a really interesting record, but uh, we'll get to that last. So let's start with Beethoven, this uh, album that Tom Moon put in here uh, of Piano Concertos number four and five. Now, last week I talked about how I, I didn't quite get why he put two albums of Piano Concertos in here and he should have put an album of the Piano Sonatas, which I still think he should have put an album of the Piano Sonatas in here, but I get now that I've listened to this album, I get why he put this in here. Um, he put this in here because the first album that we listened to last week of the piano concertos was a modern, uh, well, a recording with a modern orchestra and a modern piano of these concertos. This album uh, by piano soloist um, Arthur Schunderward and uh, the ensemble Cristofori. Um, this released in 2005 
this is done on period instruments for mm. period orchestra. So what that means is uh, it's played on instruments that would have the instruments that would have been played during Beethoven's time. This mm. this means uh, you know string instruments, the violins, violas, cellos, basses have gut strings instead of uh, you know metal the metal strings that they have today, um, which gives them a more subtle sound, a more warm sound, not quite as loud and piercing and present as a modern day instruments. Okay. Um, the orchestra is the size of the orchestra is way, way smaller. So, um, you know, we're talking maybe 14 to 16 people in the orchestra versus 60 people that you would have today. Um, and then the the piano itself is way different. So this guy's playing an instrument called pianoforte. This this is the precursor to the modern piano. This is kind of a um kind of closer in construction to the harpsichord. So the whole instrument was made of wood. Like in a modern piano, you have this huge instrument with this uh the inside of it being this huge iron plate, right? Um and uh, it's got this huge power and um, presence and all this stuff. This piano, the piano forte, um, sounds really, I don't know, kind of tinky to our modern ears. Uh, almost like a saloon piano or something. You know, hmm. how you, okay. would, you would think of that sounding. Um, it's, it's, again, much less powerful than a modern day piano. And the reason it was called a piano forte, um, this means... Piano means soft in Italian. Forte means loud. So this just basically means soft, loud. Um, this is the first keyboard instrument that you could actually control how loud or soft you were playing um, mm. because of the, the, the mechanism, the hammer mechanism in a piano. It's a brand new concept. Uh, keyboard instruments before this, um, all keyboard instruments, I'm talking harpsichords, clavichords, organ, all that stuff, um, you can't control. Uh, how loud or soft it is. It's just one volume. I mean, the only way to add volume and to play loud on a harpsichord is to play more notes. And the only way to play soft is to play fewer notes. And same thing mm -hmm. on organ. Um, the only play to, way to, to boost the volume on organ is to add more stops and more notes. Anyway, so um, uh, this is the instrument that uh, Schunderward is playing on this. And it's a, it's a much different sound than you would get with a modern orchestra and a modern piano um so yeah we're gonna listen to piano concertos number four and number five a couple excerpts from each and uh we're gonna start with piano concerto number four in g major opus 58 um and this was completed in 1806 premiered december 22nd 1808 in vienna um it marks you know, it has a lot in common with the piece we listened to last time, the Archduke Trio that we listened to last time. Uh, we kind of talked about that was uh, Beethoven's last uh, appearance uh, as a performer because of his deafness. This was Beethoven's last appearance as a soloist with an orchestra because of his deafness. Um, and, you know, a lot of people say that Beethoven, you know, even though he was deaf, he was able to continue, you know, 
with his musical career like nothing happened, but this isn't entirely true. I mean, we all know that he continued his career as a composer, but his deafness did force him to give up his career as a performer. And that's a huge thing, you know? Um, Beethoven worked really hard to establish himself as a performer, as a virtuoso pianist, and that was really as much a part of his being as was him being a composer. So him having to give up performing because he couldn't do anymore because he was deaf, that's a huge thing. Um, but anyway, um, I don't know. What did you think of this piece? Um, powerful. Just a, is as simple as I can put it, just to, to put it in one word. I mean, just the way he the way he could write for not only obviously piano, which, you know, primarily he would, he would sit and play to, to compose, but for the orchestra itself, I mean, was, it was just an amazing overall piece. I mean, there's so many things that, that go on in it that are, that are just amazing to, to think that it came from this man who, you know, was like you said, lost all hearing, but, but still could, you know, compose like no other, you yeah. know, and um, the, the the piano playing in on this is, is it's just remarkable. You know, I I, I am not really a, a, a classical music fan, but when you sit and watch someone in a modern setting play this piece, you know, it's it's just it's just cool. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it, it, it'll blow you away. I mean, whether you're a fan of classical music or not. And uh, that that's the one thing that uh, that I I notice is just the 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 piano part especially is is just it's just brilliant to to see the way it comes off you know especially in a in a live setting. Yeah, yeah. That that version I sent you the YouTube clip of was uh, of uh, pianist conductor Daniel Barenboim Boim Boim. I can never pronounce that, but Dan, Daniel <laughs> Barenboim playing this and it that's really interesting i think to watch because of course he's one of the greatest uh performers of beethoven's music um of our times and uh i mean he's he's literally done concerts or 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 like series of concerts that go over several nights where he's performed all 32 beethoven piano sonatas from memory wow Wow. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And, and then in these concerts that I sent you, he performed all the piano concertos mm-hmm. from, from memory. Not only performed them, but conducted them from yeah. the piano. I, I noticed that. I mean, I, I, I never really had seen that before where, you know, and I'm sure it, it, it's not that uncommon. Maybe it is. But to see someone play as well as he play and then stand up and start conducting the orchestra. And I, I mean, I called my wife over. I was like, look at this guy. <laughs> you yeah. know? And, um, you know, we were both, you know, just like in amazement, just looking at him go back and forth. And I, I never really had seen that before where, where someone had, had that kind of command, you know? So, yeah, um, well it's, it's unusual now to see that, but it's cool to see it because this is how it would have been done uh, during Beethoven's time when Beethoven was playing these pieces. That's exactly how it would have been done. Beethoven mm. would have been seated at the piano just like Barenboim was, and he would have been playing the concerto and directing the ensemble from the keyboard. So mm-hmm. um, that's that's 
was really the more common way back in Beethoven's time. Now it's really uncommon um, uh, to see that. But um, but yeah, um, anyway, getting back to this recording, um, you know, you asked me a question um, when we, well, I don't know if you really asked me a question, but you sort of brought this up when we were talking before we started recording um, about the titles, you know, the titles of classical music, mm-hmm, you know, they're mm-hmm. always like really long, you know, the title, yeah. the title of this piece is piano concerto number four in G major opus 58. And then of course the, the various movements have titles, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I wanted to talk about this a little bit because uh, you know, the titles seem really long and they kind of confound a lot of people. Um, and I thought this would be a good, you know, instance to, to talk about it. Um, so yeah, these titles in uh, classical music, uh, when you go to a concert, you know, if you went to the concert, you know, to see this premiere in 1800, in 1808, um, and you saw on the program piano concerto in G major, right? That's what you would have seen. I mean, back then you wouldn't have seen number four. You wouldn't have seen the opus number probably, you would have just seen piano concerto in G major, right? That's what you would have seen. Um, and as a listener in during that time, uh, like I was sort of talking about on the last show, the listeners knew the conventions of this music. And so telling them it's a piano concerto in G major already sets up a bunch of expectations in their mind. They all know what a piano concerto is. They all know how a piano concerto works. You know, they all know how a first movement works, how a second movement works, how a third movement works. And telling them what key it's in, G major, they that sets up a bunch of expectations in their heads, like right from the start. And this is what Beethoven got off on. It basically instilling all these expectations in the audience's mind and then totally um, subverting those expectations. And he does it right in the beginning of this concerto. So I'm going to play this first movement right from the beginning. And what happens is you hear the piano playing all these chords, right? Like kind of, kind of softly, you know, but the piano kind of pounding out all these chords and really establishing G major as the key. So you hear, he, he kind of pounds this into your head, G major, G major, right? In the piano mm-hmm. and the piano ends on a, on the five chord, right? The cadence, which you would expect the orchestra to come in right on the, the one chord, the G major chord, which is what everyone in the audience expects to happen. Right. And this that's the way his previous concertos worked. If you listen to the concerto or excerpts we played on the last show, that's exactly how it worked. The piano would come in and play some stuff in the key that the, the concerto was in. Then the orchestra would come in and echo what the piano did in that key. So what Beethoven does does in this piece is the piano pounds out this G major, you know, this chord progression, and then sets up the orchestra to come in in G major. But what happens is the orchestra comes in on B major. So for us, in our modern ears, and we've heard so much music and all this stuff, it doesn't really have an effect. You know, we just sort of take it as it comes. Yeah. But for an audience member during this time, for the orchestra to all of a sudden come in on B major when your ear is fully expecting a G major chord, it would have been like, whoa, what is what's what's going on? What is he doing? 
You know, they're coming in on B major. What's going to happen? It would completely throw the listener off. And now they're sort of engaged. They're like, hey, what's going to happen? What, you know? Um, so this is the kind of thing that Beethoven did constantly. You know, he, okay. he set up expectation in the listener. Then he subverted that expectation somehow. Um, so, uh, yeah, why don't we just check it out? And you guys can <laughs> try to listen for this to happen. But, um, yeah, so this is the first movement from Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 4 in G Major, Opus 58.
And we just heard the first movement of Beethoven Piano Concerto Number no. 4 in G Major, and we're going to move on to the last movement of his Piano Concerto Number no. 5 in E flat major, uh, Opus 73. And uh, yeah, what did you think of this one? Uh, just about like the last one, just a, a just a killer piece where you you have so many things going on between piano and orchestra and um you know i i i as i'm exposed to more and more beethoven have have so much more respect for him outside of what i already knew i mean you know i i never really understood how how great a piano player he was first of all i mean not and not just a player but composer where he he wrote very sophisticated pieces you know very elegant grand powerful pieces and um you know tended to you know break rules make some of his own rules for music uh like oh, yeah. you were saying before where he just would would totally you know mess with people's expectations which which is good you know i mean i i think if <clears throat> i think if you have a a talent like he does you know, you you'll want to do different things. You won't want to stay in the same vein of, of music that's already out there that, that people already know and expect. I mean, you'll you'll want to challenge people. You'll want to challenge yourself. And, um, you know, even with, you know, his hearing impairment or, or deafness or whatever, I, I think he still felt the need to, to go further and, and to do different things, to do to do bold things and, and, and went and did them in a way like nobody else. Uh, but I, I love both of these pieces a lot. I mean, it, it's, it's something for me that, you know, not really listening to classical music, the, the majority of, of my, my life, you know, and coming into it now is, is, is really fun and exciting uh, in a way where I, perspective-wise, can kind of see it differently uh, than I did, say, when I was, you know, obviously like a, a child or a teenager or even in my my twenties or thirties, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's enlightening to, to see, you know, Beethoven and, and, and compare him to, to other people in his time and, and, and people now, you know, yeah. who, who are, who have the same kind of mentality where they, they just don't want to be, I guess, pigeonholed, if you will, and, and just do the same kind of stuff all the time. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> it's interesting you brought up the piano thing or the pianist thing. I mean, Beethoven was, you know, especially during this time, his middle period when he was writing all his most famous pieces, um, you know, he was widely considered by by everyone, you know, pretty much unanimously, not only to be the best composer around at that time, but he was considered to be the best pianist, you know, in Vienna. I mean, this would be like saying, you know, everybody coming to the consensus that some dude was the best guitar player in New York city, you know, it, it would be like saying that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, many of his pieces, a lot of his piano sonatas and even these pieces were deemed by many pianists of the day to be unplayable. They, they mm -hmm. thought the only person that can play these pieces is Beethoven himself. Yeah. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> Yeah, this this piece right here marks a real uh, demarcation in Beethoven's life because 
it marks you know this the the first piano concerto that was not premiered by beethoven himself so this really is the point where beethoven becomes a pure composer and he's no longer a performer because as i said before he just he can't do it anymore because of his hearing yeah. um yeah. And this is where kind of everything starts to change and he starts to move into his late period. Um, and, and that's why there's that demarcation, you know, from this middle period to late period. And I think one of the reasons that his style progressed so far and, and, and those late pieces are the way they are is because he became a pure composer and he started to live in his head completely, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, another kind of interesting thing about these is both of these pieces were dedicated to uh, Archduke Rudolf, who uh, are the piece last time, the trio, Archduke trio that was also um, dedicated to Archduke Rudolf. So this guy was obviously a really important figure in Beethoven's life for Beethoven to dedicate all these major pieces to him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's just let's just check this out. This is a, just a great... Um, sort of finale type movement to these. It features a lot of really super virtuosic piano playing. Definitely. And uh, it's really exciting. So let's check this out. Beethoven, uh, the third movement, third and final movement, um, to his piano concerto number five in E flat major, opus 73.
And that was the final movement of Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 5. And we're going to move on to our final group of Beethoven pieces, his symphonies 1 through 9. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, trying to pick two excerpts from his nine symphonies from all the movements of his nine symphonies is just an impossibility. Um, we can't really – I mean, we, we, we did, and we picked, you know, two excerpts to play. Yeah. But – um you know, trying to get an accurate representation is, is just it, absolutely not possible. Yeah. It's, it's absurd. It's, it's yeah. by going, going back to the Beatles. It's like, <laughs> Hey, Hey, what's your favorite Beatles songs? You're, you only pick two, you know, or what's your, what's your yeah. favorite Miles Davis yeah. song or Miles Davis track? You, you can only pick two. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's just not possible. Yeah. Um, so what we do, we, what we did, we just, we picked uh, two excerpts, uh, from the couple symphonies that we liked, but um, obviously, you know, if, if you want to explore this stuff more, um, you're just gonna have to go and and uh, go through these because, yeah, you uh, <laughs> can't do it. So um, we, we picked one excerpt from his Symphony Number no. Seven. This is uh, you know an example from his middle period, and then we picked an excerpt from his Symphony Number no. Nine, an example from his late period. Um, and we're gonna start with. Uh, Symphony Number no. Seven, uh, Opus Ninety Two. Uh, this piece, uh, the the second movement, the Allegretto piece, and uh, this piece was written in eighteen eleven. Actually, the same year as the Piano Concerto Number no. Five that we just heard. Um, it was premiered in eighteen thirteen, and I thought it was interesting that there are all these other people who were really famous classical musicians involved with this premiere in some way either performing in the orchestra or conducting um now a lot of these names probably won't mean anything to to most of you but if you're a classical musician or are familiar with classical music these are pretty big names um lewis spore was in there uh johann hummel giacomo meyerbeer a famous uh italian uh opera composer uh antonio salieri who was the the famous uh nemesis you know of mozart, mozart yeah, yeah yeah um a, a, an old salieri probably in his mid 60s was uh involved in conducting um that concert um and also maro giuliani was repeat was supposed to be involved playing cello he was a famous Italian guitarist and every classical guitarist knows, you know, and has played Giuliani's music, uh, including me. But um, yeah, um, this, I, I thought that the circumstances of this concert were cool and just worth talking about. Um, it was a charity concert for wounded soldiers from the Battle of Hanau. Now, this battle was uh, one of the battles with Napoleon. And uh <clears throat> In the beginning, Beethoven was a huge Napoleon fan. <laughs> I mean, because mm. Napoleon represented this liberation from the monarchy, you know, to freedom. So people being free, you know, there's this whole thing that was going on that happened in the United States, you know, around that time and uh, then happened in France with the French Revolution. And uh, Napoleon, of course, came out of that. Uh and uh, Beethoven wrote his third symphony, the Eroica Symphony, and dedicated it to Napoleon. Mm. Then what happened was Napoleon 
declared himself emperor and basically started to try to take over the world. <laughs> and at that point, Beethoven, you know, became disavowed, you know, disenchanted, all that stuff, became furious. And it's a famous thing. You can actually go on the Internet and see this. Took the title page of the Third Symphony, you know, the manuscript score with the big dedication to Napoleon on it and scratched out Napoleon's name so hard that he tore a big hole in the paper. Mm. And we have, I mean, we have this paper, <laughs> you know, that Beethoven was so furious. So um, he actually wrote this piece called Wellington's Victory that was actually at this concert um, about, you know, this dude, Duke of Wellington, uh, defeating uh, Joseph Bonaparte, Bonaparte's uh, Napoleon's brother in Spain. And so there was this big, you know, uh, patriotic thing, you know, going on with this concert. Mm. Um, yeah. So I, I just thought that was, uh, you know, that was kind of interesting. It, it is. It, it's yeah. very interesting. I, I I didn't realize all that it, it tied into the this piece. Uh, I um I really really love this this piece. I mean it it's it's one of those things that that kind of you you hear here and there. Like the very first time I heard this was in a movie that Sean Connery did called Zardoz. Oh my um, God, oh my God, Zardoz. <laughs> and and it, it was a John Borman movie, the guy who yeah. did Excalibur. And I mean, it, it, that this piece plays at the beginning and the end and and in and out of that movie. But, um, you know, I, I I cannot think about this piece without thinking about that movie. And I know, de- depending on your 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 likings for, for the movie, I mean, you may, because some people really, really love that movie and some people really, really hate it. Yeah. Um, it, it, I cannot think about the music. Um, I cannot think about this piece without thinking about that movie. I mean, almost they're almost synonymous with each other, and I I guess that could be a good or a bad thing. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, I've I've always enjoyed it. It's it's just kind of like like kind of sad and but like pretty and, and melancholy all in the same mix. Um, just the, in this particular movement or, or, or particular part of the seventh symphony but um yeah well now see now that you mentioned zardoz i have to mention i have to mention this um and you well you mentioned zardoz and you mentioned excalibur and uh if anybody's interested in any of that um one of my favorite podcasts out there is called film sack and uh what they do is sort of go back and watch old movies and talk about them it's a great podcast you know really (laughs) entertaining um, but they did episodes on Excalibur and Zardoz. And, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, you should listen to that. I mean, it's funny that, you know, when you listen to the episode and they figure out that in, uh, you know, Excalibur, that everybody's just screaming through the whole movie. Uh-huh. You know, everybody is talking like this. And yeah. if you want to be king. And, you know, the whole entire movie is, is you know, even though they're, they might be like four inches from each other they're like shouting at each other like they're 100 yards away yeah and uh anyway <laughs> i would recommend that podcast um i actually did an episode of my other podcast all the cool parts with one of the guys from that podcast but um yeah yeah you should listen to that if if you're interested check that out but uh, <laughs> yeah did you want yeah to- nothing just I, I like both movies by the way uh just just to throw that in there, just they, they both have, you know, definite redeeming qualities to me. And like I said, some, some people, especially Zardoz have, have 
have claimed it as one of the worst movies ever made, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I, I like the movie a lot. Um, I mean, it's, it, it has a lot going on with it, but anyway, um, you know, definitely set the mood for a, a, a lot of that film, uh, that, that piece did for me. Yeah. 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 So, um, let's, let's check this out. Uh, well, no, no, what I wanted to do, I know this is getting long, but, <laughs> Uh, this middle movement, um, I'm going to play some guitar again. Okay. Um, and this middle movement is basically just these two melodies. It starts, you know, really low in the orchestra, in the violas and cellos. And, you know, with the first melody, then the second melody comes in. And it's just this layering, layering, layering. And it keeps going up, up through the orchestra. So it starts really quiet. Mm-hmm. And then it, it just reaches this massively uh huge sound (laughs) you know when the entire orchestra is engaged and so can you see can you hear that oh yeah so it starts off this is the first melody and forgive me if i mess up i'm not the greatest sight reader in the world but um so this is the um the first melody So that's the very first melody that comes in, right? Low in the orchestra. And then the second melody sounds like this. This is a melody that's laid over it. So, yeah, that's that's good. I like that. That's, that sounds that sounds great. So um, those are the two melodies that you hear. Um, yeah, th- thank thank uh, public domain scores. I was <laughs> reading off of the violin two part there, mm. <laughs> but um, but yeah. So those are the two melodies that he just sort of develops and grows into this huge thing. So let's let's hear it. Um, the opening to Beethoven Symphony Number no. 7 the second movement allegretto
And we just heard the second movement ah, from Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 7. And we're going to move on to Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9 in D minor, uh, Opus 125. This is obviously is, is Beethoven's last completed symphony. He was working on a 10th symphony when he died, and it was not um, near enough completed to have been completed. You know, there, there's a lot of famous pieces um, that were kind of reconstructed, you know, unfinished pieces. There was the unfinished Requiem of Mozart that was, you know, enough of it was completed that that it was able to be completed by one of his students. Yeah. There's the, there was the unfinished, you know, viola concerto of Bella Bartok that was finished there. There's a lot of pieces like this, but unfortunately Beethoven's 10th was not far enough along to be completed. Mm. Um, So, you know, this is the last symphony that we have. Uh, from Beethoven, and this symphony culminates in the famous, super famous um, Ode to Joy. Yeah. And uh, that's what we're going to hear, you know, when this theme comes in, this Ode to Joy theme comes in in the orchestra. But this piece is, man, it's it's so much more huger. That's right, huger. And... <laughs> <laughs> and uh and and grand more you know more grand and and massive and complicated than just this um ode to joy theme is so and and I have to point out that you know the ode to joy part is the part that everybody's heard that's yeah. just one part of the last movement you know this this has three other movements that precede it and the the entire work is just huge and uh anyway w- but what did you think of this piece? well the the first thing, uh, like you said, it it's definitely the the Ode to Joy part is is it's one of the most recognized pieces of of music ever. Not just classical music or Beethoven, but I mean, you know, there are little kids. You know, you can you can play this and they'll hum along with it. I mean, it's it, it permeates, you know, society as a whole. You know, big time. I, I I'd say, you know, this has been put out there and in all sorts of mediums on TV, obviously in radio. And, you know, it, it's just, it's one of those things that like, and like you said, it, it's so much bigger than what people know, you know, and, and, and so much more in depth and, and I, I would say, I guess complicated, uh, but it's, it's a lot deeper than, than just the surface of, of, of the part that everybody knows. And, um, you know, even this morning, you know, when I, I was kind of going over and my wife was like, Hey, I, I know that. And I was like, yeah, me too. You know? And, and like I said, you know, it's just something that, that has gone, you know, gone on to be just, just legendary, uh, in a sense to where it, 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 it's just well known by almost everybody. Um, oh yeah. I mean, Beethoven is one of the few people really have to say in the history of humanity that can claim that you know he was super famous when he was alive and his music was being performed all over the place during his lifetime and has never ever stopped being performed it never ever even you know slowed down yeah you know what i mean it's it's only just gotten bigger and bigger um you know since since he was alive until until this day i mean you know not many humans that have been alive on this earth can claim that no not um, really and, and and that's that's a really good point i mean <clears throat> to look at the music that he's done as a whole and, and look past you know pieces like this and, and beethoven's fifth which you know they're like the cornerstones of 
of what you think Beethoven is, but he he was so much more than than what most people know or what most people think about when they think of his name. And 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 that for me is what's really fun about, you know, getting into him in in a way like this in this book where, you know, if you're not as familiar, you know, you can you can recognize better, you know, how much of a a, a great figure he is in in music composition. I mean, just I mean, a remarkable person, a remarkable talent and and, and had all sorts of reasons really to just just take it all and chunk it, especially once his hearing left him. You know, a lot of people would have given up, you know, but he just he his drive. I, and I imagine he was very driven. He just couldn't allow himself to do that. You know, um, there was just there was just so much that he had to say and, and wanted to say with with his music and his craft. And and that's one of those things that I really respect about him tremendously. Oh, yeah. And really, his influence has um, touched every musician of every genre. I mean, that, yeah. that's his, I mean, I don't care if you're a classical musician or, you know, a bluegrass mandolin player, you know, in Tennessee or a classical Indian sitar player or, you know, a Mexican mariachi musician. It doesn't matter. Beethoven's influence has touched every musician of every genre. In some um, way, yeah. In, in some way, I mean, you know, I'm not saying the um, the influence is always huge, but it, it is at least touched, you know, <laughs> every musician of every genre in some way. And uh, so this piece, you know, there's a there's some interesting stories and anecdotes, you know, about the premiere of this piece. But you know, when this piece was premiered, Beethoven, of course, was you know old at this point. I mean, he was in his fifties. I mean, you know, now we're just like that's not old, but in the 1820s, that was kind of old. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, he was, of course, completely deaf by this time. And, you know, but the musicians and everybody had such respect for him that what happened during the premiere was Beethoven was actually on stage. He was not performing or conducting because he couldn't do that anymore. But he was sitting on stage with the conductor. The conductor gave the... Uh, you know, the direction to the orchestra to just kind of ignore anything that Beethoven did. But Beethoven would, uh, we was sitting on stage with the score and he would beat out the tempos for the conductor and then he would kind of conduct. Mm. But of course he couldn't hear anything. So, mm. you know, the orchestra just kind of let him be on stage and, and do his thing, you know, yeah. out of respect. Yeah, he's him. he's earned it. He, I think at, at that point he yeah. he earned it. I mean, yeah. even if you go, it's like you know what the hell is he doing? But <laughs> you know, he he had earned that right at that point to yeah. just sit there and 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 kind of you know feel his own groove, so to speak. You know, right? Exactly. And you know, there's the famous story, which is true, of uh, you know after the this you know symphony was over and it was done. There was this, you know, thunderous applause. You know, the audience stood and the the applause was just thunderous. And Beethoven was looking at the orchestra so he couldn't see or hear what was going on behind him. And uh, someone from the audience, so a woman that, you know, he was acquainted with, had to come up on stage and turn him around <laughs> to face the audience so he could see the, you know, the applause and stuff. But... Um, 
Yeah, you can actually see this. They recreate this scene in um, the movie Immortal Beloved about Beethoven is starring. Um, uh, oh, what's his name? He just, uh, just, Gary, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman. Yeah, yeah. Gary, yeah. Gary Oldman is Beethoven. And it's a it's a really great movie. I mean, a lot of it is dramatized and, you know, Hollywoodized and all that stuff. It's not 100 percent historically accurate, but it's still a, a great movie about uh, Beethoven and, and his life. Yeah. Um. So, uh, yeah. In, any anything else you want to say this before we play this? No. Let, let's just go ahead and, hit and roll the track. I mean, we, you know, we pretty much have, have covered, you know, a, a, a large majority of how we both feel about you know both these pieces. But I, I definitely want want to hear it. All right, man. So let's check this out. This is the final movement of Beethoven's final symphony, Symphony Number no. Nine in D Minor, Opus One Twenty Five. Thank you. 
And we just heard Beethoven Symphony Number no. 9 in D minor. And that does it for our Beethoven segment of the podcast. And uh, we're going to move on to jazz pioneer, jazz trumpet player Bix Beiderbecke. Um, his album Singing the Blues, Volume 1, recorded in 1927 and re-released in 1990. Um, Bix Beiderbecke was an interesting figure and a very short-lived figure. Um, yeah. Yeah, he, he died at the age of as it, as 27 or 28. Yeah, I like think that. he was like 28 years old. 28. Yeah, he was alcoholic. Um, had long bouts, apparently, with alcoholism, which is it's just one of those, like you said, you know, way, way too short a career. Um, and an almost seemingly, you know, nasty run with with you know, young musicians that, you know, they, they check out way too soon. His story was definitely like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean this, uh, if you go through the history of jazz, you know, you see this happen to a lot of people early on. Um, even, you know, into the fifties and sixties, a lot of times, uh, early on, of course, and during this era, um, you had a lot of alcoholism and then a little bit later, you had this uh, kind of scourge of heroin that mm-hmm. was just, I mean, just so pervasive through the jazz community. You know, it took Charlie Parker and all kinds of people. But, um, but yeah, getting back to, to Bix Beiderbecke, you know, he was a trumpet player during the time uh, when Louis Armstrong was really coming up. And, you know, mm-hmm. Louis Armstrong was recording his Hot Fives and Hot Sevens that we actually talked about on a previous episode, <clears throat> excuse me, previous episode of this podcast. And, um, uh, you know, I read that, you know, Big Spiderbeck was really in love with a small jazz group. He had graduated, I guess, as a trumpet, lead trumpet of Paul Whiteman's jazz orchestra, which was one of the biggest, you know, most successful jazz orchestras of the time. Um, and uh, but apparently he really wanted to get back to his roots and was kind of depressed and drank himself to death. Mm. Um, but uh, we're going to start with this track, Singing the Blues. And uh, this starts with a sax solo by uh, Frankie Trumbauer. And then we're going to hear Beiderbeck himself on on cornet, actually. But yeah, did you, what did you think of this one? Well, it, my main thinking uh, along what he brought to the table, he kind of was, you know, he could, he could play the big band style of jazz, but I think he may have been one of the first, you know, people to bring, I guess what you would call cool jazz to the table or, and I, I want to say smooth jazz, but not really, that's not really what I mean. I mean, you, you hear that, you hear smooth jazz and you think I'm in an elevator listening to Kenny G. And I mean, that's, that's not what I mean. I right, mean, right, right. I mean, him, him saying cool jazz, I mean, laid back, you know, bluesy, even, you know, like the, the track, one of the tracks we're going to listen to kind of hints at, I mean, just someone who was just, just very, very smooth, you know, and, uh, and, and, and had such a great tone and, and what he was doing, you know, uh, definitely, I think was was an early influence on that style of jazz. Uh, what well, I guess what you would call cool jazz. Yeah, 
Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's funny you brought that up about smooth jazz. It, it does have kind of a bad connotation. In fact, just the other day I was on Facebook and uh, I saw this picture. Someone posted like a friend of a friend. So someone liked this picture that I knew. But it was a picture of these two people that I didn't know. But the caption was, you know, us on this on the smooth jazz cruise. Yeah. And I just thought smooth jazz cruise. That sounds about like about the one of the worst things I can possibly think of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh um yeah, um yeah, cool jazz. Yeah, so um he did, you know, you know this is really uh simplified sort of pared down solos, you know. Um uh really choosing notes wisely sort of giving the individual note uh greater impact. This is something that Miles Davis was really instrumental in oh, yeah. in developing. Oh, yeah. And it was kind yeah. of a reaction against Bebop, you know, a reaction against what Charlie Parker did and and what John Coltrane was doing, this ultra complicated, you know, yeah. a yeah. super difficult, super virtuosic music. Exactly. Where, yeah. Exactly. It was a reaction against that. But um this kind of yeah, you're right. This kind of predated all that. Um and uh I don't know. You want to just check out this first track? Yeah, let, let, let's let's go ahead and hear it. Um, and uh, I, I guess the, the first track we're going to hear is uh, is it singing the blues? Um, yeah, I think that's the one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, this is uh, and I I always jack his name up. I I, I mean I've heard you say it now <laughs> like three times. Um, but uh, this is a uh, singing the blues by. And I'll let you say it. <laughs> <laughs> Bix Biderbeck. Thank you. <laughs> was singing the blues uh by bix biderbeck yep there we go uh and uh the next track we're gonna hear is uh i'm i'm coming to virginia um which uh is a a lot like the uh the track we heard before in, in a way where you know very pared down you know not a lot of complicated composition here just just really 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 you know laid back I, I i visualize people in a club 
you know, lots of cigarettes, you know. Oh yeah. Set up with with you know shots of whatever and 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 hats and 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 maybe even sunglasses. And and the club is dark. Why do you need dark sunglasses in a club? <laughs> and then and then people just tell you, hey, it's, that's just how I roll. Yeah. You know, it's it's I'm cool like that. You know, and and that's when I hear this, I mean, I that's what I, what I really see. You know, or visualize in my mind. You know, it's just a a whole different splinter of, of, of jazz that that totally did not want to be you know mixed up with with anything that was too complicated you know too bravado or loud just just wanted to be kind of simple and kind of kind of smooth but but really stylish and 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 the quality of the music too is just you know it, it's it's really good you know it's not something that that's that's watered down you know or, or sappy you know that that's what i hear when i when i hear this track oh yeah 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 and the thing i thought was interesting about this track was uh the use of guitar so we have um eddie lang on guitar and you know during this time in jazz especially in american jazz you just really didn't hear the guitar i mean if you heard a pluck string instrument you heard banjo i mean that's what was in uh, louis armstrong's band mm-hmm. you had a banjo player and even then the banjo was really kind of chunking out chords and not playing sort of these single line melodic lines like like this guy is playing here. I mean, the only other thing I can compare it to that was going on at the time in jazz was going on in France uh, with Django Reinhardt hmm. and really nothing else in, in the United States. You know, you didn't hear a guitar like this. So this is um, really ahead of its time. I would say, you know, the use of guitar in jazz like this. Yeah, um, I yeah. just I thought it, that was really cool. And it, it's so common, I think now, and, and standard in jazz that you really you don't really yeah. understand the, the gravity of of how first of all how how early it was. I mean, in the nineteen twenties, you know, it just it was not typically something that was done. Obviously, I mean, and and I guess that's that's what you know makes this you know such a uh, a a great I guess you know moment in music where you know a, a new standard was sort of set for a lot of people like you said like Miles Davis to come after and and just take what this sound was to a whole nother level uh, people like Miles Davis not just Miles but uh, you know I, when I think cool jazz I definitely think Miles I mean <laughs> Miles Davis I mean you know, for what it's worth, I mean, we'll get on to him obviously later on. Was was a lot like a rock star in in some ways, and not really a jazz musician. I mean, he he was a jazz musician, but he was so much cooler than that. And I mean, you know, again, that the whole other level thing. That's I think that's kind of where I'm I'm coming to where where jazz was not just some sort of stiff, you know, regimented, you know play by the rules type music you know it it could be so much more it could be so much cooler so much more um i'm trying to think of a word um so much more hip i guess than than a lot of people would give it credit for yeah definitely um yeah yeah and i i just like this guy's playing i mean it's not he's not just like a django clone you know his guitar playing is distinctly American. It's got this like real bluesy feel to it. He's bending the strings and 
anyway, it's just just something unusual for the time. But uh, yeah, yeah, let's listen to it. This is um, "I'm Coming Virginia" by Big Spiderbeck. We just heard I'm Coming to Virginia by Bix Beiderbeck, and we're going to move on to Harry Belafonte, his album Live at Carnegie Hall, released in 1959. And uh, this album, I I mean, I don't know what I was expecting. You know, my my experience musically with Belafonte is really, really limited. You know, it's like the Banana Boat song, you know, really. Yeah. Um, And I didn't really know anything else. Uh, And this album is so diverse. Yeah, you know it's incredibly Very. diverse. Uh, it's got so much stuff from like so many different cultures, and um, yeah, I don't know what what did you think of this album? Well, I, I think it just reflects who Harry Belafonte was. He he was sort of an ambassador of sorts for music, where he he definitely was was well traveled himself as far as going around the world and performing. And I think he was just a person. Who, who first of all loved people and and had a a disdain for people that were oppressed or, or people who were downtrodden I mean that that was just one of those things I think that that always drove him and and it was it was willing to to embrace all sorts of things outside of you know just what had encompassed him early in his life I mean growing up I think in the in the Caribbean um or West Indies, where he, where I think he was born, he, he, um, just was able to to take whatever you could throw at him and, and convert it into something that that had his thumbprint on. I mean, he he could he could sing, you know, any kind of music, perform any kind of music, and and like you said, a very diverse set where it it wasn't just him and a band you know, up playing in front of people. Apparently this, this show had actual people out on stage performing along with the songs, almost as if, 
you know, it was like a stage play or a musical. And uh, I, I really have not seen the, the visual. I mean, we listened to tracks, but I would love to see what was going on on the stage. Apparently there's, there's a lot that was going on. I mean, like, like, like I said, people coming out and sets and costumes. And I was like, really, you know, so um, I, I would love to see this actual concert, like the footage from it, because the, listening to the performance, I mean, the, the band was amazing. I mean, Harry, Harry just has a, just a great voice and, and, and such a stage presence. I mean, he, I mean, he was a good looking guy, tall. I, I would even say, I, I would go as far as to say a, a sex symbol of his age where he, yeah, he not I only so. yeah. sang, but, but was in movies and, I mean, and then his whole, you know, uh, social uh, involvement with, with civil rights. And uh, I mean, just, you know, and, and, and it's still active. You know, I, I saw him maybe uh, a while back on, on Tavis Smiley's show and just, you know, he, he's he's a lot older and, and not as active as he was, but but definitely is a voice. I mean, he he does not pull any punches when it comes to to politics and, and dealing with, you know, social ills. I mean, he I mean, he can be very hard, you know, on on a variety of subjects as far as especially, like I said, oppressed people. He, he totally hates that. I mean, but anyway, um, I had not really listened to this record before, was familiar with some of the songs, like you said, the Banana Boat song, you know, pretty much everybody. I mean, you all you have to do is go to a basketball game and you hear, Dale, <laughs> all right. you know, when, whenever they they have something that's going on where, where something is, is delayed the game, they always throw that out there. I mean, it's just one of those things that's just kind of, you know, almost, you know, second nature, but um the guy had had such talent. I mean, he, I mean, he still does. I mean, like I said, he he's he's older and, and, and he's not performing like he was, but he was he had such a great voice, such a great presence. Um, and uh, the the two songs that we're gonna hear, uh, the two tracks we're gonna hear, uh, one of them, which I, I was I was a little surprised, but but not so much, um, was a a song that you often hear at weddings, especially weddings where where it's maybe a jewish wedding um yeah i, I was surprised <laughs> yeah yeah uh and I, I, hava nagila yeah i was like why and, and and not only does he sing that song but but sings it well where i mean you know he he i mean i, I went through just because i i didn't even know what that meant i mean i've heard that song over the years you know, and and didn't even know exactly what it meant, and found out it's it's let us rejoice. Okay. And 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 and, and sings the song, you know, phonetically, where he's he's not muddling over the words. I mean, he I mean hits it dead on, and then, and then the band comes in because at first it's they're they're very subtle the way they play, and then they come in with him, and and I mean it's it's an awesome performance, you know. Yeah. Just, yeah, he's singing it in straight up Hebrew with. Uh, the correct, you know, pronunciations and, exactly. and, and, and exactly. accents and, you know, gutturals and all that stuff to the, to the which, language. And yeah, which it, in a sense is important because so many people muddle that song so badly Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where they just, I don't know what the words are. I'm just going to sing it because I'm happy. And this is a, a celebration or a party, whatever, let's go, yeah. you know, but he does not do that. He, he totally, I mean, nails 
it, like you said, the pronunciation of, of the Hebrew, the Hebrew words where you're like, okay, this is, this is not, like you said, this is not what I expected, but it is, it's, it's so much better. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, I think one reason why people do muddle through it is they're just not, you know, obviously they're just not familiar with Hebrew. Yeah. But uh, he sings it like he's a native speaker. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. You start to wonder, is is, is Harry Belafonte Jewish? <laughs> no, <laughs> no joke. No joke. I did yeah. wonder that for a second. I was like, hey, well, okay, that's, that could be, I guess it's possible. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so anyway, you, you want to check know, it out? Yeah, um, and, and and by the way, I, I said in the Caribbean. I mean, he 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 was actually born in New York, in 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 Harlem. That's something I I, I needed to mention that. But you know, his his family apparently he had family in the West Indies. And anyway, yeah, let, let's let's check it out. Uh, this is Harry Belafonte with a uh, Hava Nagila. Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila. Hava nagila, hava nagila, jenesmacha. Hava naranenna, hava naranenna, hava naranenna, jenesmacha. Hava naranenna, hava naranenna, hava naranenna, jenesmacha. Uru, uru achi, uru achi, menem sameyak, uru achi, menem sameyak, uru achi, menem sameyak, uru achi. with Hava Nagila and uh, the next song we're going to hear uh, from Harry um, is I forget what it is what is it uh, I think it's the Marching Saints there you go that's you're, you're right um, another song done quite a bit over the years uh, just one of those songs that in, in tradition is a kind of like a standard that you hear you know a, a jazz band play or you know, I think Elvis has done it too. A uh, variety of people, and and just you know, great rendition. Uh, what what did you think about about his version of this song? His version's cool. I mean, he he just does it in this kind of, um, you know, sort of swinging, cool, hip kind of more free way, you know, than you would normally hear it done just sort of straight. Um, and uh it's 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 real it's it's very nice very playful and it really i think uh you can hear harry belafonte's personality really come through in this you know yeah just yeah. just listening to him sing it and the way he sings it and yeah yeah what do yeah, you think yeah I, I again i like you said i i think that you know his his persona definitely it, it comes forth in everything that he does even if it's a song that you've heard you know, because when I I normally hear this song, it, it it makes me think about about New Orleans and and you know like a brass band in New Orleans that would do it. Um, 
and and that's the traditional way that I, I would normally think about this song. But like you said, he his version is 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 different in a sense. Like you said, it it, it definitely is is a lot more playful and, and swinging and 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 just uh, again, like I said, I, I I would really love to see this the actual footage of this. I'm I'm sure that that it's it's got to be out there somewhere. And to see what was going on on the stage while he did this song and other songs, you know, um, and uh, just just to try to get a, a better picture of 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 everything that was going on. Um, but uh, you know, just I, I imagine Harry has probably sang since he was very very young, you know, and just carried a lot of that with him as as a child. Songs that he he learned and, and brought them on into his adulthood, you know, and, and just, it, it, he just was, was oozing with, with, with talent on all fronts, you know, just as far as, you know, singing and, and acting and, and, and just, you know, being who he was. I mean, he really was, I mean, at, at the time when he was famous, I mean, he was just, he was the man, you know, and, and, and for someone who was black, in that era, I mean, you know, broke down a lot of barriers where, you know, some people had had been held back before, you know, and I just he just seems like one of those guys that would not be denied. You know, his his talent was that great. His will was that great. And um, and I, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people, you know, tried to deny him. But eventually, you know, it's just one of those things you you're going to have to give it up to Harry. You know, he's he's just that good. You know, yeah, and and, yeah. and and he and he would demand it too. I mean, I he just seems like one of those guys that you know. It's just like, I'm I'm just not gonna take this. You know, I'm I'm better than this. You know, yeah. So to, absolutely, so, yeah. But uh, but anyway, um, uh, let's go ahead and, and listen to this track um, from uh, Harry Belafonte. I'm sorry, Harry Belafonte. Uh, this is Marching Saints. Oh, when the saints. Go marching in Yes When the saints go marching in Oh Lord, I want to be in that number When the saints go marching in Yes, when the saints go marching in Yes when the saints go marching in, oh Lord, I want to be in that number. When the saints go marching in, yes, when the saints go marching in. Dear old mother, and if you should see her before I do, won't you tell her that you saw me coming and I was marching straight on through? Yes, when the saints go marching in. Oh, Lord, I want to be in that number When 
man, we just heard Marching Saints uh, from Harry Belafonte. Uh, and we're moving on to uh, the last artist uh, on this week's podcast, uh, Peter Bellamy, who I was very unfamiliar with uh, before reading about him in the book. Yeah, I was, uh, I was totally unfamiliar. Yeah, just um, sounds... Uh, very, very, very much like uh, a throwback to old, old English folk music. And I mean, I, I, I'm assuming, you know, you know, Irish influenced as well. Uh, I mean, when I hear him, the the first person that came to mind or first group that came to mind was sort of like the Chieftains. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, you know, old style, you know, wood and flute type instruments and, you know, definitely no electricity uh but but good genuine roots feeling music as far as i guess uh irish or or english folk music um and i i i don't know like you said you 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 hadn't really heard anything from him before i mean um what what did you think about uh about uh mr bellamy um i liked it uh you know what he what this guy did was um well, this particular album we're talking about is called The Transports, released in 1977. And uh, I guess this is, for lack of a better term, it's sort of like a folk opera. Mm. But uh, what Peter Bellamy liked doing is he liked taking these um, traditional stories from, you know, Ireland or England, but that are set as like these epic poems, you know, like a poem that will fill a whole book, you know. So a classic version of that might be... Uh, uh, you know, Homer's The Odyssey or Dante's The Inferno or something like that. You know, these these stories that are set as poetry, but they're book length. And um, so what he did is he took this, this, you know, epic poem about, uh, it's a true story about two people, Henry Cabell and Susanna Holmes. I guess they were both convicted at a young age of uh, unrelated robberies. Uh, this was like in the 18th century, I think. And um, they were among the first people shipped off to Australia. And uh, this story apparently is about uh, while they were incarcerated in England, they fell in love, you know, had a son. And then the whole family was literally shipped off to Australia. And so I think part of the uh, part of the story takes place in England. Then part of the story takes place on the you know, on the boat as they're, you know, going to uh, Australia and then at the end in Australia or whatever. But, um, you know, I was thinking about that, about how, I don't know, long and, and harrowing a voyage in the 18th century by sea from England to Australia would have been. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, I know that, um, you know, right now I'm reading this really awesome biography of, uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin by Walter Isaacson. And he talks about, you know, Benjamin Franklin going back and forth from Pennsylvania to England. And I know that trip took about three weeks mm. and uh, we're talking a <sighs> distance. Yeah. And we're wow. talking from England to Australia. You know, you have to go all the way down around the Southern tip of Africa and all the, you know, around India and all this stuff to get to Australia from England. I mean, you're talking about, you know, easily five times the distance. So you're talking about months and months and months at sea. Um, and man, how dangerous that must have been. I mean, it was just, it was dangerous going from America just across the Atlantic, mm -hmm. you know? 
Um, so how incredibly dangerous and harrowing that would have been. Um, man, but anyway, yeah, these songs are like, yeah, they're like folk songs, you know, but, but done in this storied way to tell this story. And, um, I think the first one we're going to listen to is roll down, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like a pub song or something like a pub drinking song or something. Yeah. That, that's the, the feel I got too, where it's just like, you know, it's 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 a story like you said a, a story in in an almost like a folky but 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 blues like feeling where like you said you know these people are going through really really rough situation and 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 kind of you know everybody's reflecting on it as the story's being told and you know while we're doing that we're going to get hammered and well maybe not hammered but we're definitely drinking and uh, <laughs> yeah, and then you know it, it kind of you know I, for me, I, I think if I'm if I'm in the pub, and, and and I'm hearing this and it's my perspective, you know whatever else I'm going on in the present, you know it, it kind of maybe gives me like a, a a kinship for for their their situation. Maybe I'm not going through as bad a situation, but you know it it it's almost like a, a way to 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 drown your sorrows, you know, and, and kind of feel along, especially if this is being played and everybody's singing it, you know, I, I know I would feel, I'd feel a lot better, you know, I mean, after I've, I've had a couple and, and I'm with, you know, my crew or my buddies or my mates or whatever you want to call it. And, and we're all singing along to this song you know an an old song a song that's older than than all of us in the whole place put together you know and uh you know it it's it's it was interesting you know i i really have not been able to figure i mean because because this is one of those records i mean it it seemed like it's it's very rare you know trying to find the the clips for the record definitely i mean it's, it's not an easy record to find which you know, I'm I'm beginning to realize, you know, that's one of those things that really doesn't face Tom Moon very much at all. Where if no. if it's a if it's a record that let's say like we we go to half price books and we just we're going through the actual vinyl records and we see something, we know it's out of print. We know it's not, you know, currently, you know, in in you know distribution anywhere. And, and we may be the only two people that that know about it, but we just put it in this book anyway. I mean, it seems like that's that's almost like his mentality, which I, I I'm beginning to gain a, a a massive respect for because it's like if 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 he liked it enough, you know, for his own person to think that maybe someone else may be influenced by it. Yeah, I go ahead, definitely put it in because you know I, I wouldn't have thought to to put this in, but, but now after listening to it, I, I can, I can see why, you know, it's, it's just a great example of, of that folk spirit that I guess would have come through in music from that era. And, and then the whole storytelling, you know, side of it as well, where, you know, it's, it's obviously something that, you know, people can kind of look back on and, and, and like you said, think, you know, man, how how would they have survived, you know, especially with with what they all they had back then, a trip that long, you know, on those seas, on, on those seas. I mean, there could have been storms they went through and, you know, 
getting lost or whatever. Just ooh. And and also pirates. I mean, yeah, there are pirates I, everywhere. And there's there's a story um, in the uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin biography, you know, on, about one of his trips to England where they had to literally um, divert their path and go hide um, in an island alcove from pirates. Wow. Wow. <laughs> to escape, you know, on one of his trips. And yeah, I mean, so all these dangers were everywhere. And then think about where they were going. You know, they were going to Australia, which is a completely undeveloped uh, brand new colony. So there's really nothing there, you know? Yeah. Um, and so anyway, but yeah, as far as the song, I just love this. I mean, you know, you hear the word opera and you immediately think, oh, this huge overblown production. This is no huge overblown production. This. No. This just sounds like a bunch of people in a pub. That's what yeah. I, th- I think yeah. it's great. Yeah. Um, so anyway, let's check this out. This is Roll Down from Peter Bellamy. Of Plymouth, we're saying goodbye. Roll down. We'll rock you and roll you again by and by. Walk around me, bright boys, and roll down. And we will roll down. Walk around me, bright boys, and roll down. Now the anchor's away and the sails are unfurled. Roll down. We're bound for to take her halfway round the world. Walk around me, bright boys, and roll down. And we will roll down. Walk around me, bright boys, and roll down. In the wide bay of Biscay, the seas will run high. Roll down. The poor sickly transports, they'll wish they could die. Walk around me, bright boys, and roll down. And we will roll down. Walk around me, bright boys, and roll down. When the wild coast of Africa, it do appear. Roll down. Poor nervous transports, they'll tremble with fear. Walk around me, bright boys, and roll down. And we will roll down. Walk around me, bright boys, and roll down. And we just heard Roll Down by Peter Bellamy, and we're going to end with the robbers song um uh from his i guess folk opera the transports um yeah i don't know anything to say about this one before we play it it's kind of just along the same lines but yeah yeah definitely you know the the whole thing with the instrumentation being being very very acoustic very very you know stripped down where you know it's 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 just a total throwback to the way obviously things were back then. And, um, you know, just a good snapshot of, of what, you know, people did, you know, as as far as, you know, traditional, you know, English folk music, how how it went. And, and, and like I said, going back to the, the situation with, with the pub and, and it just sounds like both of these, but just sound like, you know, traditional drinking songs if you will you know which that that's not just you know a staple with with english culture obviously i mean you know i've i've heard i mean living in texas texas especially you know lots of country you know and and even uh 
I guess what you would say like uh, Tejano music, where it's you you know a drinking song when you hear it immediately in those veins. I mean, it's just it's not even something that you have to think about if you're a drinker or not. It's just, you know, a, a good drinking song. There's really nothing like it, whether it's it's Tejano or country or blues or or, or Irish English folk. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's just something about it that it, when you get a whole group of people in one place, a, a bar, a club or a pub and, and everybody knows the song and everybody sings it, it it's 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 just really cool, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah. And, and these songs are done, you know, like people have told stories for literally thousands of years are done in this style where, you know, a person would come to town you know, you could call them a troubadour, you could call them a bard, you could call them a minstrel, something like this. And um, that's what they would do. They would come travel from town to town with an instrument and they would memorize these epic poems that were stories. And that's how these stories were told to people for thousands of years, you know, and that's, yeah. kind, that's kind of how this is being done, hmm. um, you know, in, in that, in that vein. So um, in that sense, you know, I think it's really cool because it's not just, it's a throwback to the past, but it's a throwback to the past, how it was done for thousands of years, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we just don't hear that anymore, you know, in our modern no. society. So yeah, that's one cool thing. I, I, I just liked a lot about this album and, and um, Peter Bellamy's approach, you know, to doing these things. So um, yeah, let's check it out. The last excerpt from Peter Bellamy's The Transports. This is the robber's song. You know to knock it from light-fingered gentry When the night he come a-fallin' My tendin' to me callin' Along the wall a-callin' For petty larceny There is no sweeter feelin' Beneath the wind a-nailin' And through the casement stealin' With the spoils of thievery you should see how I just and we just heard the robbers song by Peter Bellamy and that's going to do it for episode number 17 of the 1000 recordings podcast if you'd like to send us an email and please do our address is 1000 recordings podcast at gmail.com you can go to our website at 1000 rp dot blogspot.com you can join us on twitter at twitter.com slash 1000 rp and you can join us on our facebook page where we post a lot of um extra stuff and you can have you know conversations with us on on that page and all kinds of stuff um also uh if you would we would appreciate it greatly if you would go to itunes and leave us a review and a rating and that would you know just help us get our podcast out there to more people and we have a new five-star review to read this week. So um, do you want me to read that or do you want to read that? <laughs> you you can read it because well, I'm actually going to it right now. As Just as you said that, I, I thought to myself, you know, uh, let me pull that up. Um, but I, again, thank thanks every, everybody for your reviews, for your comments. Um, they are greatly appreciated. Um, and... Uh, if you yeah, if you have it there, please please read it. Okay, well this is comes to us from Joss S. and uh, Joss, that's a cool name. And uh, the, Joss says 
Anthony and Mitch have done a fantastic job creating an accessible and interesting walk through the moon book. Their easygoing and approachable style makes you eager to hear more, and they offer a nice compliment to this excellent and comprehensive book. Good for all appreciators of music, casual to hardcore, and everyone in between. Thank you, and keep up the great work. So wow. thank you, Joss, for that awesome uh, review. And uh, yeah, if you uh, would like to leave us a five-star review, or any review, <laughs> a one-star review, on iTunes, please do so, and we will uh, read those on the podcast. So I'll probably even read a one-star review. I think it would be hilarious if we got, oh, yeah, that's, got we, slammed we by somebody. To, we have to. I mean, because <laughs> the thing is, it's not everybody's going to gonna like us, and I, I don't expect that. But um, please, you know, give it to us, whatever you think. If you if you think we suck, that's, hey, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> you know, you can do your own podcast. But if you yeah, think absolutely. that we're doing a good job or if you think we're even kind of in the middle, you know, we, we, we appreciate all the feedback that, that you give. Definitely. Oh yeah. Um, and, uh, the preview for next week, what do we got coming up next week? Uh, Bell and Sebastian. Um, uh, that's, uh, one of the groups, uh, and, uh, the second one here is an Italian name that I am not going to butcher. Uh, Vi- uh, Vincenzo Bellini. There you so, go. Uh, uh, opera, his opera Norman, Nor- Norman, Norma. <laughs> Nor- Norman would be much different than Norma. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, then what? What's after that? Uh, Bambaya Jazz National. Um, it's African Mambo. That should be fun. Oh yeah, that should be real fun. Uh. Uh, Jorge Ben, uh, Brazilian, Brazilian artist. Uh, that's always fun. I love Brazilian music. Yep. Uh, and then the phenomena of uh, the Gregorian <laughs> chant, which uh, we were all kind of in the middle of that at one period of time. Uh, yeah, we were. That we were working at the record store when that thing broke Bro- yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was that was quite a phenomenon. It was. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I just. I mean, when when you work music retail, and I, I have a few friends, you know, outside of you that that know what it's like to sell records. I mean, certain things come along where you just kind of scratch your head, like, okay, why this and why now? You yeah, know? yeah. And and that was definitely one of those things where you know, all of a sudden, people wanted to hear, you know, chant music. I mean, it was, I mean, it was bigger than you know techno i mean i was just like what in the world but it was i mean it was great i mean it, was, it sounded great but again i was like why why now why why this and you know people are just you know unusual at what they you know gravitate to towards sometimes and i guess it it just kind of steamrolls where if something's popular and enough people like it you know all of a sudden it's it's a phenomenon but anyway um that's also up next week yeah yeah cool that should be interesting um well, okay. I guess uh, you know we'll get to that stuff next week, and that's pretty much it for this week for what we have. So until next week, um, you know we'll see everybody later. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thank you for listening. Thanks for your support and your comments. Um, have a great week. Uh, happy MLK Day to everybody, and we'll see you next week. I've just finished filming and recording the great Ninth Symphony, his final one.
with Schiller's famous Ode to Joy, sung by chorus and soloists in the last movement. And I've come out of this experience, curiously enough, thinking about dates of all things, comparative dates, which is a thing I very rarely think about, having conceived an immense dislike for memorizing dates while studying English battles during a Shakespeare course at college. Agincourt and Crecy, ugh, when exactly was the Thirty Years' War or the Hundred Years' War? And yet, suddenly, after conducting this Ninth Symphony, dates began to swarm into my head. Look, I suddenly thought, Haydn and George Washington were both born in the same year, 1732, exactly 100 years before Goethe finished his Faust and died. Crazy thoughts like that. Why in heaven's name, I asked myself, am I suddenly bedeviled by this kind of academic thinking? So I indulged in a bit of self-analysis, some free associations, and I now know why. The reasons lie deep in my emotional insides, and I'd like to share them with you. My associations led me back to the year of my own birth, 1918, the year of the great armistice, which brought the First World War to an end. Now I had the key. The password was peace, armistice, brotherhood. Ain't gonna study war no more. Peace, brotherhood, we are all children of one father. Let us embrace one another, all the millions of us, friendship, love, joy. These, of course, are all the key words and phrases from Schiller's poem to which Beethoven attached that glorious music, ranging from the mysterious to the radiant to the devout to the ecstatic. And so my madness with dates was not so mad after all. I was not mulling over 1066, the Battle of Hastings, and 1216, the Magna Carta, and 1848, Social Revolution. Rather, I was grasping at 1000 BC, when King David sang his sublime psalm, Hineim matov umanayim shevet achim gam yachad. Behold, how good and lovely for men to dwell together as brothers. 